When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistlestop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson. The episode you're about to hear is a special mashup from my recent time on the road. I'm just wrapping up a fantastic book tour, meeting all of you out there who've been so loyal and who are responsible for this podcast continuing and for the book and all of the research that it took and the long hours that it took to put it together. And I'm so incredibly grateful This episode will include audio recorded during our live shows in New York and San Francisco. Thanks to everyone who came out. Enjoy the show. Okay. Thank you all for being here, first of all. And so many of you are standing. I'm overdressed tonight, and I'm often overdressed for the actual whistle stop, because what happens is, usually on a Sunday after we're done with the broadcast, I then realize I have to do the whistle stop by Monday morning. I go into a closet at CBS. There's a light switch on the wall that says, this light switch does not work. I flip it every time I go in. <laughs> it still doesn't work. And then I sit in and I stand in the dark at, with a music stand that's not unlike this. And I don't have enough room for my stuff. And then I basically smell acoustic foam for uh, what used to be 15 minutes. And now the last one was 55 minutes. I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> You know, and hopefully tonight won't be like what they used to say about a Humphrey dinner speech. What follows a Humphrey dinner speech? Breakfast. So uh, we're going to, I'm not going to go on as far as I thought I might. You know, this started out just like as a, like a lark. Now I'm going into this this closet with the acoustic foam twice a month and now you're all here. So we might as well tell a story. It's July 13th, 1798. And a disheveled man walks the dusty road from Philadelphia on his way to an undetermined location below the Potomac River in Virginia. He's penniless, and he's reportedly been feeding himself and his children on broken vittles. He's been borrowing money for lumber and snuff. His wife has died from the yellow fever. He's unkempt with a hunted look. And you might want to pity him. He's a journalist, so of course (laughs) you should pity him. But stay a while. There is some mountain of evidence that he is not a swell fellow. For example, even though he's just lost his wife, he's a little too eager for a new one. He writes to a friend he hopes in Virginia to find a, quote, hearty Virginia female who could fatten pigs, boil hominy, and hold her tongue. (laughs) He's on the run because Federalists are after him. One Federalist editor writes and describes him this way. He was a little mangy Scotsman who has a remarkably shy and suspicious countenance, loves grog, wears a shabby dress, and has no hat on the crown of his head, I am not certain whether he has ears or not. He leans his head towards one side as if his neck had a stretch and goes along working his shoulders up and down with evident signs of anger against the fleas and lice. So who is this lice-ridden drunkard? Well... His name is James Thompson Callender, and he is a scandal monger, and he is responsible for two of the great early sex scandals in American history. His first victim can be seen nightly at the Richard Rogers Theater. How many here have seen Hamilton? 
so then all of you with your hands up know what it's like to be penniless and living <laughs> off, of, <laughs> off of leftovers after making those kinds of choices. So Hamilton chronicles the election of 1800, which is the election everybody turns to when they say, oh, it's so terrible now, and then somebody says, no, the election of 1800, it goes back, it's a part of our DNA. In fact, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda in an interview with Rolling Stone says, this election is no more bizarre than the one in 1800. Jefferson accused Adams of being a hermaphrodite. Actually, <laughs> Jefferson didn't accuse Adams of being a hermaphrodite, James Callender did. Now, why is that important? Because Jefferson paid Callender to do it. And the <laughs> distinction there is that Callender was an attack dog paid for by Jefferson. We don't need to do that anymore, the candidates today, because they just attack each other directly. In the uh, nominating speeches, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump a combined time mentioned each other 40 times. In 2012, Obama and Romney mentioned each other only 13 times, and in 2004, the two nominees mentioned each other only three times. It used to be candidates wanted to stay on the high road and not mention their opponent. Remember, they would say, my opponent, instead of Donald Trump. Now there is no difference between the high and the low road. There's one road and it's low. Um, what Callender did for Jefferson and what Hamilton had people doing for him, and just to refresh the memory, Hamilton in support of a big uh, federal government because he thought well, that was the only way that the economy could work if you had all the states stitched together. Jefferson supported the farmer. The agrarian faith of the nation was, was in the farmer's bones and what he did. He supported France and the revolutionaries there. Hamilton leaned more towards the British. This battle fought out daily in the press. It was called the gutter period of American press because nobody was unbiased. They were all biased, and they weren't just biased. They, were, they would fight each other in the street, these editors. It was like if Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity pushed each other down <laughs> in bars. They had this unlimited thesaurus of words that they used. Their, their opponents were depraved, worthless, vile, intemperate, wicked. There were constant accusations of drunkenness, <laughs> which were true. Uh, and so this is the world that Callender lived in, and it was basically so Jefferson could make anonymous attacks and Hamilton could too. It was like Twitter, but at much longer length. <laughs> so what did Callender do to Alexander Hamilton? Well, as those of you who've seen Hamilton know, when he was 36 years old, he began an affair with the 23-year-old Mariah Reynolds. Mariah Reynolds came to his house and said her husband had abandoned her and could he borrow some money. Hamilton wrote, it required a harder heart than mine to refuse it to beauty in distress. He delivered the money to her house. I took the bill out of my pocket and gave it to her. Some conversation ensued from which it was quickly apparent that other than pecuniary consolation would be acceptable. It's the most anodyne description of an affair. <laughs> Mariah's gonna come over, we're gonna watch some Netflix, and then maybe some other than pecuniary compensation <laughs> might happen. It's not really like a penthouse letter. <laughs> Dear penthouse, I never thought this would happen to me. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, A.M. <laughs> So anyway, Mariah Reynolds' husband, James, finds out the big question about whether he finds out or he initiated the whole scheme at the beginning. Anyway, James finds out, extorts money. Hamilton pays about $24,000 to James. It's all going you know, according to that plan until James gets busted for another scheme he's running to, that has to do with Revolutionary War uh, payments to veterans. He drops the dime on Hamilton. James Monroe and two, other mem and two members of Congress come and investigate Hamilton. This, doesn't, this is elided in the, in the musical because they got to move the narrative along. Basically, Hamilton says, I wasn't scamming money as Treasury Secretary. I was just having an affair. 
there was a wall between public and private, and it was up to, and, and Monroe and the two members of Congress were just fine with that wall existing because they benefited from that wall existing too. So they said, okay, that's fine. They put all the, the documents related to the investigation in a safe place. Not safe enough. So that happens in, 19, uh, in 1792. Four years later in 1796, the clerk of the House is fired by the Federalists. He's an ally of Jefferson, the Federalists, Hamilton's band. The clerk of the house is fired, and he wants to get back at the Federalists. He really wants to get back at Hamilton, who had nothing to do with his firing, but he's the top Federalist, so he wants to get back at him. He leaks all of the information to Calendar. So Calendar is very excited about this. He writes in a volume called The History of the United States, 1796, which is a rather dull name for the volume that uh, it's sort of like the brown wrapper in what was inside. And as my editor, John Swansburg, points, quite rightly points out, that Calendar, for all of his purple language, actually his titles of his books are very boring. So the history of the United States, 19, uh, 1796, says, this great master of morality, he's talking about Hamilton here, though himself the father of a family, confessed that he had an illicit correspondence with another man's wife. Calendar wasn't satisfied with the simple claim of adultery. So much correspondence could not refer exclusively to wenching. So he publishes his account. Now, back to Jefferson. Jefferson always whinged uh, and went on about how bad the press was and how terrible it was that the press didn't deal with the weighty matters of the day, but that they were constantly attacking each other. Listen, this is what he says about what a good editor would do. A good editor would have to set his face against the demoralizing practice of feeding the public mind habitually on slander and the depravity of taste. Defamation is becoming a necessity of life insomuch that a dish of tea in the morning or evening cannot be digested without this stimulant. Even those who do not believe these abominations still read them with complacence and betray a secret pleasure in the possibility that some may believe them, though they do not themselves. Oh, poor Thomas. So he's very publicly chagrined about the nature of the press, which is why when Calendar undoes Hamilton and is seen as the greatest scandalmonger of America, Jefferson goes to meet with him, to hire him. So they meet at Snowden and McCorkle in 1797, and Jefferson says, I need you on my team to fight against the Federalists. Now, just to step back a second, Jefferson used to work for Washington. One of Washington's greatest critics was James Callender. If ever a nation was debauched by a man, the American nation has been debauched by Washington. If ever a nation has suffered from improper influence of a man, the American nation has been deceived by Washington. Jefferson's boss, Jefferson now hiring the guy who said this about his boss. Hamilton, meanwhile, is trying to figure out what to do with himself. He's uh, been exposed as an adulterer, but the charge of scheming and you know, sort of insider trading hangs out there. He's much more worried about that. So he writes a 95-page pamphlet. To This is the Reynolds pamphlet, as all of you uh, familiar with the musical will know. Now, there's an expression when you're explaining you're losing in politics. When you're writing 95 pages of explanation, you're at the wrong stadium. You're playing the wrong game. He publishes this pamphlet. The title is as convoluted as the argument. Observations on certain documents contained in number five and six of the history of the United States for the year of 1796, in which the charge of speculation against Alexander Hamilton, late Secretary of the Treasury, is fully refuted. Written by himself. <sighs> so... Anyway, in the context of these 95 pages, he says, my real crime is in a more amorous connection with his wife, meaning Reynolds' wife. Hamilton totally misreads his audience. The papers are enraged. If a man will rob his family of their peace and enjoyment, if he will abandon himself to the vilest connections, if he will place daggers in the breast of a virtuous wife and stab the reputation of his children, 
Where are the bonds of honor to vouch for his fidelity in any other transaction? Jefferson, feeling as he does about scandal in the press, no doubt, even though this was his grave enemy, would feel heartbroken. No. <laughs> if you have not seen it, Calendar writes to Jefferson, no anticipation can equal the infamy of this piece. This piece meaning Hamilton's defense of himself. It is worth all the 50 of the best pens in America could have said against him. The reason this matters, we're just making fun of Jefferson as a hypocrite, which is fine, but the reason the fighting was so so hot and heavy is these two men thought they were defining the new country and whether it would survive. There were real stakes, real issues at play, and they believed in what they were saying passionately. And so they felt like anything in the service of our argument, because to win the argument was to keep the nation alive and not to destroy this new experiment. So Calendar is now, you know, the Federalists are not happy with James Callender, so he flees Philadelphia. He has to walk because he's worried if he takes a carriage, he'll be assassinated in the carriage. On his way, he's taken by a terrible thirst, and he is then arrested, drunk, and passed out in front of a Lynchburg distillery, <laughs> perhaps trying to get a contact high. Uh, Jefferson writes to him, the violence which, is, which was mediated against you lately has excited a very general indignation in this part of the country. The point here is Jefferson and Callender are entwined. He's not just getting him to beat up on Hamilton and the Federalists. He's giving him these little pep talks. And it's good because Callender's a man of some uh, who needs some bucking up, despite the savagery of what he's writing. He says when he gets to Virginia that he's being belied and stared at as if I was a rhinoceros. <laughs> Jefferson gives him $50, which is a lot of money at that time, convinces his friends to put him up, and he starts writing again. In the election of 1800, between John Adams and Jefferson, Jefferson keeps corresponding with him, saying, keep up the writing, but doesn't sign his letters because he's got this public posture of being a high-minded man uh, who cares about the, the virtue of the public conversation. Callender writes something called The Prospect Before Us, in which he writes about Mr. Adams, and here's where we come to the important phrase that he uses to describe him. A hideous, hermaphroditical character, which has neither the force and firmness of a man, nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. Jefferson, remember, high-minded Jefferson up there at Monticello studying his Palladian architecture. Um, I feel like, you know how Catholics can tell Catholic jokes? I went to the University of Virginia, so I can do this to Thomas Jefferson. It's a part of the charter of Virginia. You can. Jefferson wrote to Calendar after he writes The Prospect Before Us, savaging Adams. Adams, who, by the way, used to be Jefferson's great friend when they were both ambassadors together. Jefferson wrote Adams a letter, and he said, the departure of your family has left me in the dumps. An expression I thought sounded very modern. Anyway, <laughs> he writes to Callender and he says that the book cannot fail to produce the best effect, which is basically to savage Adams. And Adams doesn't put up with this. So he puts him in jail using the Sedition Act. Throws Callender into jail. It's the last famous trial of the Sedition Act. So Callender, who's a, this is quite clever, keeps writing, <laughs> writes a new chapter of the book called More Sedition. Uh, <laughs> And so he just beats the hell out of Adams. And, and Jefferson went under, went under his own penalty. You know, the Federalists were fighting back with their savage press. In fact, one of the papers printed a story that Jefferson had died. He had not died. But then the paper explained why it had killed Jefferson. Some compassionate being, trying to cheer people up during the ugly presidential campaign, very humanely killed Mr. Jefferson. <laughs> So Jefferson wins the election after what's a great story, but we're not going to do it here. Beats Adams, then gets into this tussle with Burr, goes for 36 ballots. Burr, before the voting took place, Burr's in the same party, took, voting took place, said, 
of course, if there's a tie, I won't, I won't, I'll step down, of course, a tie, Jefferson should be president. Goes back on that immediately, it's a long fight. Hamilton, because the Congress is still in control, the Federalists still control Congress, it's the last Congress, so it's the Congress of 1798, the Federalists are still in charge. So Hamilton comes down on Jefferson's side, you'll remember this from the musical, and Jefferson wins. Calendar is giddy. Hurrah, he yelps. How shall I triumph over the miscreants? How, as Othello says, shall they be damned beyond all depth? When they toast Jefferson at the bars, they, and they toast Calendar. So to James Calendar, who looks down on his persecutors with their merited contempt. Calendar wants a job now. Of course, he's done all this good work. He's gotten Jefferson elected. He writes him a letter. Jefferson puts him in the spam filter, does not respond. More letters are written. More responses are not forthcoming. He writes, by the cause I have lost five years of labor, gained 5,000 enemies, got my name inserted in 5,000 libels. I mention these particulars as it is probably the close of my correspondence with you that you may not suppose that I at least have gained anything by the victories of republicanism. Continues to write, continues to not get any answer. And so we have some audio tape of Calendar's feelings at the time. <laughs> Oh, what are you supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I'm, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. You may remember that as Glenn Close from Fatal Attraction. Um, calendar will not be ignored. He comes to Washington, makes his appeal in person. Jefferson won't see him. Madison sees him. By the way, you get the sense that there are like 12 people in America at the time. Because Calendar's meeting with Madison. So at one point, Hamilton accuses Monroe of uh, leaking these documents to Calendar. They're about to have a duel. Who breaks it up? Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, who, who uh, took care of the divorce proceedings for Mariah Reynolds. So anyway, he comes, meets with Madison. Madison rebuffs him. Calendar gets furious, goes back to Richmond, starts his own newspaper for the purpose of savaging Thomas Jefferson. The first thing he does is prints all their correspondence. So now everybody has seen what the high-minded Jefferson has been doing over the years behind the scenes to support Calendar. I am really mortified, wrote Jefferson, I bet he was, at the, <laughs> at the base ingratitude of Calendar. It presents human nature in a hideous form. It gives me concern because I perceive that relief, which was afforded to him on mere motives of charity, may be viewed under the aspect of employing him as a writer. <laughs> Abigail Adams writes him and says she's floored that he was employing him as a writer to, to ruin her husband's career and get him so that he wouldn't be serving a second term. Jefferson wrote, nobody sooner disapproved of Calendar's writing than I did. <laughs> also not true. So now at this point, Republican papers come to Jefferson's defense and savage Calendar, which is a totally bad idea because Calendar then writes this. It is well known that the man whom it delighteth the public to honor keeps and for many years has kept as his concubine one of his slaves. Her name is Sally. The name of her eldest son is Tom. His features are said to bear a striking, although sable, resemblance to the president himself. By this wench, Sally, our president has delivered several children. The African Venus is said to officiate as housekeeper at Monticello. So, having ruined Hamilton, he now is the first one to print that Jefferson had an affair with Sally Hemings, which then Jefferson, unlike Hamilton, says, next, and just moves on and doesn't answer the charge. So it's a rumor for a long time until about 15 years ago when they do the DNA tests and turn, you know, prove that it's actually true. Calendar writes at the end of his series of, of uh, articles on Jefferson and Sally Hemings, when Mr. Jefferson has read the article, he will find leisure to estimate how much has been lost or gained 
by so many unprovoked attacks on J.T. Callender. Callender goes on to have a kind of desultory uh, series of uh, failures after that. He's still writing, but he starts to drink more, and his editor says that for him to be sober was to be drunk just once a day, and that when he was drunk, he would be as drunk as two men were. This becomes a problem where uh, one early Sunday morning he goes to bathe in the James River and dies in three feet of water. There's a quick inquest. It's proven that he died because people thought he might have been murdered. And the old adage is born, which is that if you're going to get an intact dog, keep him well fed. So that's the story of James Callender. Okay, one little thing about this project, the Whistle Stop podcast, uh, which you are all nice enough to listen to, and now the book, is that there are those shaggy dog leads at the beginning where I spend a lot of time kind of sketching some scene. This comes from uh, when I started out in journalism, I started at Time Magazine, and you could write those kinds of leads because people had, there was no internet. People had time, there were no text messages. Now nobody wants to read them because there's stuff to do. I mean, there's Pokemon Go characters to go chase after. <laughs> Who knows how many people on Game of Thrones have died since you started reading <laughs> the lead, but I get to keep writing them. We've been talking a lot about 1968 and George Wallace with, in connection with the Trump campaign, so I thought I would read the lead from the Wallace chapter, which is an example of the form. <laughs> on November 3rd, 1967, aides for Alabama Governor George Wallace hauled his 1,500-pound bulletproof lectern onto the stage at the Orange County Fairgrounds Pavilion. For 10 days in California, he'd been railing from behind that barricade in what analysts deemed was a fruitless effort to get on the ballot as an independent candidate in all 50 states. The segregationists rallied the crowd of 3,000 to his message of states' rights and his promise to get tough on crime. If you're molested, when you leave here tonight, the molester will be free before you are out of the hospital. For 45 minutes, he fulminated. He was a balled-up fist of a man with deep-set eyes, black caterpillar eyebrows applied to a face that at times looked like an angry parsnip. <laughs> at five foot seven, he stood erect as if trying to argue out every last inch of height he might get. When not fulminating, he made preparations to fulminate, the husbanding grievances. He had the best grievance garden of any modern politician. He tended it in quiet while other men slept and then used the cuttings to feed his entertaining sessions on the stump. They've never paid any attention to anything that the people of your state and my state did or said in the past, he told audiences. They ignored us and looked down their nose at us and called us everything under the sun, and I am sick and tired of it, and I resent it. Wallace really only had one riff, but he chopped it up for different audiences. A master of just-in-time packaging. He fed bite-sized version to reporters on the campaign planes and at press conferences. He railed rat-a-tat-tat against the asinine Supreme Court, the pointy-headed intellectuals in Washington, who made decisions for communities they know nothing about. He abused foreign aid, open housing, pseudo-intellectual professors, rioters, anarchists, communists, the left-wing press, and the whole world generally all arrayed against him. He said he was sick and tired of big government telling us when to get up and when to go to sleep. When you bristle that much, you're going to need an army. And at the Orange County rally, it looked like Wallace had recruits. A number of the local police wore Wallace buttons. Some signed up to join his new party. The candidate also traveled with 16 buzz-cut members of the Alabama State Police who were carrying 38 caliber pistols and looked over every passerby like they were assessing just what kind of sleeper hold they'd like to put them in. One bruiser visited San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district to look at the hippies and visit a couple of topless clubs. I've read in the Bible about Sodom and Gomorrah, he concluded, and I'd say that San Francisco is about to have another earthquake. 
Wallace's audience has prized his candor and the lack of political correctness. You don't have to worry about figuring out where he stands, said one voter. He tells it like it is. So where have we heard that expression before? <laughs> also about Wallace, people thought he was a joke at first. He was just a plant. LBJ got him into the race so he could steal votes from the Republicans. So nobody took him seriously at first. Then, once they did figure out what he was up to, they, they said, oh my God, he's tapping into this anger in the country. Another similarity. Law and order, when you hear Donald Trump talk about law and order, people have said he's talking about Nixon. No, he's talking about Wallace. Wallace was the first one to talk about law and order. It was Nixon catching up to Wallace that made that a part of his lexicon. In fact, the, the competition was so robust between Humphrey and Nixon to catch up with Wallace on law and order that the mayor of San Francisco said, none of these candidates is running for president. They're all running for sheriff. <laughs> but the big difference between then and now is that think about 1968 and li listen to where Wallace's poll numbers went when there was violence in 1968. In April, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, which uncorked all kinds of riots in American cities. At that point, Wallace was at nine points. Within days after the assassination of Robert Kennedy in early June, he was at 16 points. After the violence at the Democratic Convention, he went up to 21 points. And on that trajectory, he was likely to get about 30 points by election day. The whole deal with Wallace was not that he was going to win, but that he was going to throw the election into the House of Representatives and then be able to have some control over who ultimately won. Every night on the evening news, some block, city block was smoldering. That was the environment in which he was talking about law and order. We don't really have that. We just went through two conventions in which there were no major acts of violence. He also benefited from the trouble in his crowds. They used to say if the protesters didn't interrupt his speeches, he'd have to pay them to. Because then it allowed him to say, have your fun now, because after November 5th, you're through in this country. The other big difference, though, is that in 1968, there were busing programs and housing programs that were actually affecting people's lives in a way that we don't have that kind of direct coercion in legislation now. <coughs> one final point about the Wallace race in 68. In one of the ways they beat Wallace was that Humphrey, who was losing votes to Wallace among blue-collar workers in the Midwest, basically took on the Wallace argument that he was for the working people. And Humphrey said this, let's lay it on the line. He said this in Detroit, George Wallace's pitch is racism. If you want to feel damn mean and ornery, find some other way to do it, but don't sacrifice your country. George Wallace has been engaged in union busting wherever, whenever he's had the chance. Any union man who votes for him is not a good union man. So that's what Wallace said in 1968. Here's Hillary Clinton in 2016. Let's cut through all the hype and rhetoric and understand that we're dealing with somebody who's had a history of stiffing people, making things somewhere else besides America and wherever possible, hiring foreign workers. So Humphrey is saying Wallace is not real. Back in Alabama, he busts unions, even though he says he's for the working man. Hillary Clinton is saying, even though Donald Trump says he's for the working man, his private behavior as a, as a businessman totally contradicts that. The difference, union participation was 25% of the labor force in 1968. Today, it's around 11 so what Humphrey could do is use the organization of the unions to draw support organizationally away from Wallace. We don't know if Hillary Clinton will be able to do that with blue-collar workers with Donald Trump. All right, thanks to you all. Okay, whistle stop listeners. We're going to swap over to the San Francisco live show, Zoom across the country. Enjoy. Okay, before questions, we'll do uh, my favorite discovery in this process, James G. Blaine the continental liar from the state of Maine. <laughs> Blaine, fix him in your mind. He looks like Donald Sutherland, but he was the 19th century equivalent of Bill Clinton, a, a real political power at the time. And here's how 
the Milwaukee Sentinel describes him as he takes a train trip through Elyria, Ohio. The former Speaker of the House passed by a group of men working for the Lake Erie Company. When Blaine appeared, a large body of men came running out of the shops and rushed forward, shouting and cheering to shake hands with Mr. Blaine. They were evidently genuine working men with bare breasts and arms and sweating and begrimed faces. Blaine leaned forward, held out his hand, and said, How are you, boys? The men shouted back, We're Blaine to a man. The Sentinel, which was a Republican paper, and therefore a supporter of Blaine's, he was the Republican running against Grover Cleveland, the whole discovery of Blaine came through me writing about Cleveland and Mama, where's my pa? This was a race in which you had Cleveland admitting to having a child out of wedlock, and then Blaine, who had scandals following him like tin cans tied to his ankle. He had, in a famous cartoon of the time, Blaine is pictured in uh, loincloth having had his toga ripped off and his whole body is tattooed with the different scandals that he had following him. So the Sentinel is on his side, but the Sentinel knows he's got issues. So this is what they write about. Whatever may be said, writes the Sentinel, and much must justly be said against Mr. Blaine as a public man, only the blindest and bitterest prejudice can deny that he possesses the quality of interesting the mind and making friends among the people. Curiosity alone does not bring working men from their shops and tradesmen from their stores and farmers from their fields to welcome a public man. He has some secret quality which is very near to greatness. He has the quality of a popular leader, the power to stimulate the imagination and attract sympathies of masses of men. He is a splendid and imposing figure upon the public stage, exciting powerful friendship or hatred. He is both abused and praised to success, but nowhere does he meet with the indifference that falls to the lot of mediocrity. They're basically saying, don't worry about the issues. People love him. And whatever they think, they're not indifferent about it. This is like saying, what is this like saying? This is like saying, drunk driving may be dangerous, but no one reacts to it with indifference. It's like, it's the least that you can say about a person. So why are they having so much, why are they trying so hard to create uh, an aura around this person? Because he has real issues. Here is one of them. They're known as the Mulligan Letters. It's a scandal related in 1876. Blaine is going to run for president. It's about two months from the nominating convention. And he comes up, there, there is a rumor, and then the House Judiciary Committee calls a hearing to investigate whether as Speaker of the House, when he was providing land for the railroad, a, a specific railroad company, that they gave him bonds, which was legal at the time. You could help the railroad country, uh, company get land, and they'd give you bonds. So it was already a pretty cushy system. But then there was a rumor that the bonds were bought back by the railroad company at way above their value. So in other words, he was paid off for helping them get the land. There's a hearing in the House of Representatives, and he's doing very well in the hearing, mostly because the chairman of the railroad company writes a letter, a glowing letter about Blaine, how he had helped, but he, he did in fact get these bonds, but he lost all this money with the bonds, and it was a sign of his commitment to the railroad and the country that he'd taken this bath on this investment, and it's a winning letter on Blaine's side. He's basically headed towards the exits, and suddenly a clerk from the railroad company comes and describes a quite different situation in which Blaine and the chairman of the railroad company collude to get the railroad company the land, give Blaine the bonds on the promise that the bonds will then be bought back at way above value. And this was all cooked up beforehand. And when they ask Mr. Mulligan, the clerk, how he knows this, he says that he has letters that lay out the whole scheme. At which point, Blaine, who is there watching the proceedings, leans over to his friend and says, tell them you're sick. At which point, his friend, a member of Congress, stands up and says, we must be adjourned. I'm sick. (laughs) 
And somehow in 1884, this works. <laughs> they adjourn for the day. So during the period of adjournment, you can imagine that Blaine did not just spend his uh, evening playing cards. And what he did do will now be recounted in the official testimony, which I will read for you. Two players in the testimony. Epa Hutton of Virginia. He's the chief prosecutor. He's a Democrat. And William Fry, who's a Republican congressman from Maine, same state. And he has sympathies for Blaine. He's a Republican. He's, he's engaged here in either what South Park would call a Chewbacca defense or which regular lawyers would just know as a red herring. And you'll, you'll see that come upon us. So this is Mr. Hunton describing what happens after uh, the fellow becomes ill and the, and the uh, hearing is adjourned for the day. Upon the evening, Mr. Mulligan was waited on by Mr. Blaine. He was invited to the house of Mr. Blaine. Mr. Mulligan said, Mr. Blaine, I decline to go to your house. I do not want to talk about what I've been brought here for. I desire to take the stand tomorrow, untrammeled by conversation of any kind with anybody. Twice, Mr. Blaine sent a messenger down to induce Mulligan to come to his house. Mr. Mulligan still declined. Presently, Mr. Blaine came into the hotel where Mulligan stopped in the city of Washington. Mr. Mulligan was in the barber shop, undergoing the pleasant operation of shaving, or about to undergo it. And Mr. Blaine followed him into that barber shop and commenced to entreat and earnestly to request that Mr. Mulligan would give up those letters which Blaine had addressed to Warren Fisher. Warren Fisher was the chairman of the railroad company. Mulligan declined to do it. At this point, Mr. Fry is moved to speak. I ask my colleague of the committee if I may interrupt him. Mr. Hunton, yes, you may, Mr. Fry. The gentleman is now stating evidence, and I desire him to be very careful, because as I remember it, there is no testimony whatever showing or tending to show that Mr. Blaine in a barber shop in the presence of the barber and treated Mr. Mulligan for those letters. Mr. Hunton, it matters not where he entreated him. I am under the impression it was there, but I'm not certain. Mr. Fry, the letters were not read in any barber shop. <laughs> Mr. Hunton, I will take him out of the barber shop. It does not matter in the least where the entreaty was made. Mr. Blaine entreated him. I give you now the substance of the language of the witness. He entreated him with tears in his eyes, going down on his knees, or almost on his knees. Mr. Fry, in the barber shop? <laughs> I did not say in the barber shop. I do not care where it is. He made the entreaty with tears in his eyes, almost, if not quite, on his knees. You hear Hunton getting very specific about the knees because he's getting so much grief on the barber shop. He's like, well, he wasn't entirely on his knees. He might have been three quarters on his knees. He might have been doing Roman squats. I don't know. But Blaine said, if you do not deliver those letters to me, I am ruined. He also threatened to commit suicide. Mr. Mulligan refused to deliver the letters. He said, Mr. Blaine, I see by the evening paper that my testimony given to the committee today is to be assailed and impugned. And in case my character and testimony are assailed, I want those letters to justify me in my testimony before the committee. Mr. Blaine asked, do you suppose that I am going to assail you? The witness said, if you do not assail me, others may, and my character is too dear to me, not to vindicate it if I can. Mr. Blaine then tried politics, and he asked the witness, are you content with your station? To this, Mulligan said he would like to improve it if he could. <laughs> Mr. Blaine said, would you like a political office? Mulligan replied that he did not like politics. 
and did not care about it. Mr. Blaine then asked how he would like a foreign consulship. <laughs> he would not like it. Foreign food gave him a sour stomach. <laughs> that's not in the trip. That's not. After that, Blaine said, let me see the letters to peruse them. The witness objected, but he said finally, upon a pledge of honor from Mr. Blaine that he would return the letters, they were given to him to read. Mr. Blaine read them over once or twice and returned them to the witness. Again, he made an effort to obtain the letters, and Mr. Mulligan left the company and went into his room. In a short time, Mr. Blaine followed him into his room, and this scene occurred between the parties without any witnesses. Mr. Blaine again endeavored to get possession of the letters. The witness again declined to deliver them. The witness says, Mr. Blaine said, I want to reread those letters again, and I want to have them for that purpose. He asked the witness to let him see the letters again, and the witness said that on a like pledge of honor to return them to him, he delivered those letters over a second time to Mr. Blaine to read and return them. And when Mr. Blaine had read them and kept them a short time, he refused to deliver them. <laughs> the witness became excited demanded his letters, and followed Mr. Blaine into the room of Mr. Atkins on the floor below. And there demanded his letters from Mr. Blaine, and he not only demanded his letters, but he demanded the private memorandum, which the witness himself had made to use on his examination before the committee to refresh his memory. This was taken by Mr. Blaine, and this also Mr. Blaine refused to deliver. That's it. Blaine doesn't give him the letters. Trial's over. This apparently also is possible in 1884. <laughs> so Blaine emerges a hero from this trial. It's extraordinary. And he goes then to the convention in Cincinnati in 1876. And this is the way Blaine is praised by his party. This is a grand year, a year in which we called up for the man who has torn from the throat, I should say, before we start. This was the golden age of purple prose in politicians and in press. This is a politician putting Blaine's name into nomination. This is a grand year, a year in which we call for a man who has torn from the throat of treason, the tongue of slander. A man that has snatched the mask of democracy from the hideous face of rebellion. So he's got one hand on the tongue, another hand on the mask. A man who, like an intellectual athlete, stood in the arena of debate, challenged all comers, and who upon the present moment is a total stranger to defeat. Like an armed warrior, like a plumed knight, James G. Blaine marched down the halls of the American Congress and threw his shining lances Full and fair. How could you throw the lances? You had the tongue in the mask. <laughs> this man is indeed an intellectual athlete. Full and fair against the brazen foreheads. Remember in James' calendar, they called him a brazen forehead. What is it with the brazen forehead? Between 1800 and 1884, brazen forehead is still... Why don't we talk about brazen foreheads anymore? Full and fair against the brazen foreheads of every defamer of this country and maligner of his honor. He doesn't get the nomination because despite the fact that you can adjourn a hearing based on just some tummy trouble and that you can steal letters and not get in trouble for it, the, the uh, Republicans were still a little nervous. So flash forward to 1884, Blaine does get the nomination. He's on his way because Grover Cleveland has this out of wedlock birth problem. It's hurting his candidacy quite a lot. But turns out there's one more mulligan letter that Blaine didn't know about. And that letter... Do you remember during the, the trial, the great moment that helped Blaine was the executive from the railroad company writing a letter that talked about how Blaine had taken a real hit? The one letter that remains is a script. And the script of that letter is the identical script of what the railroad boss ultimately wrote to the committee. It's a script written by Blaine to the railroad boss 
saying, if you could write me a letter that says exactly this, it would really help me in my judiciary committee hearing. <laughs> and so the letter says, I knew with what severity and pecuniary loss fell upon you and with what integrity and nerve you met it. So that's one problem. Then printed at the bottom of the letter are the words, burn this letter. <laughs> So even after deleting the emails, there's one left, and it says, burn this letter. So at every Republican rally, Democrats would show up and shout, burn this letter. So the other reason I like 1884, before we close out on it, is that when people say in the current election, it's a choice between the lesser of two evils, more so than ever before, you've got two candidates with historic negatives, what, candidate, what campaign has it been like? This is the closest one I can find. You had... Cleveland with the out-of-wedlock birth, which got him in a lot of trouble. You had Blaine with the Mulligan letters. And this is the way the purple prose of the Milwaukee Journal wrote about the choice. I should tell you, uh, Maria Halpin was the name of the woman with whom Cleveland had the affair. The Daily Journal wrote, The stinking meat, the moldy bread, rancid butter, and drugged coffee will fill out the bill of fare which offers the Mulligan letters and Maria Halpin for dessert. But it will not attract the people. Must have been very confusing reading the newspaper back then. <laughs> and this is the best uh, description, though, of the, of the choice before the people. The campaign became a contest over the copulative habits of one and the prevaricative habits of the other. We are told that Mr. Blaine has been delinquent in office but blameless in private life, while Mr. Cleveland has been a model of official integrity but culpable in his personal relations. We should therefore elect Mr. Cleveland to the public office which he is so well qualified to fill, and remand Mr. Blaine to the private station to which he is admirably fitted to adorn. <laughs> so that's it for 1884. Before I take questions, I just have to say thank you to all of you because this whole project started as some uh, little stories I used to tell at the end of the Slate Gabfest. And then people said, you should tell those stories at greater length. So at Slate, where if you just have an idea, they let you go do it, uh, which is how the first Gabfest started, now it's been there for 11 years, we said, okay, well, we'll, we'll try a, a podcast about these stories. So then, then you held that up, and you made that continue now for more than a year. And then some of you wrote in and said, you know, you should make this into a book. And now that book exists, and now I'm here talking to all of you. In addition to all of my colleagues who are really great, thanks to all of you for your sympathy and your generosity and your listening to me through all those stories and to tonight. And so now I welcome your questions. I have a question about party unity. You talked at the top of the hour about how maybe it's more healthy for parties to have more explicit internecine conflicts. I'm wondering if you can find uh, in your historian mind vault an example of a relationship that is as strained as the one between Paul Ryan and Donald Trump, his party's nominee. So wait, that's too easy, because a relationship that's as strained, because then you could have just, uh, like Hugh Scott thought Goldwater was a disaster. And so Hugh Scott was a congressman at the time of Pennsylvania, went on to be a senator, Republican, who you know, thought Goldwater was going to kill the party. Uh, Jacob Javits in New York, Ken Keating in New York. But what is implicit in your question is, a Speaker of the House and a nominee. So that's not just some other dude. That's the, basically the most powerful other Republican. I'm sure there's, well, 
Okay, but you can't cheat by saying, I can't cheat by saying Jefferson and Adams, because I mean, he was, right, they were, the Jefferson was not an unpowerful person. So what is the modern example of this? Um, I don't know. So you had, uh, so this is all, I'm all ducking your question because I don't have an answer. But um, <laughs> when Everett Dirksen, who was the Senate Republican leader, spoke at the 1952 convention, he essentially called out Governor De Thomas Dewey for having lost the previous two times. Now, Dewey wasn't running. At that point, it was Eisenhower. But that caused a huge stir at the time. That was seen as being out of, you know, crazy. Let me see if I can come up with one by the end of tonight, but you've stumped me. I'm trying to think. Oh, wait. So Carter in, in 80, Robert Byrd, Moynihan, and about six other senators go and support Kennedy against Carter at the end, particularly the fight over whether uh, delegates should be bound uh, the so-called robot rule, whether everybody should be bound to the, to the primary results in their states. And those senators essentially sided with Kennedy. So, you know, Moynihan and Byrd were, big, were a big deal. That's maybe close, but it didn't represent what's happening now, which is this, you know, I mean, Paul Ryan has rebuked Trump like more than half a dozen times. Go ahead. Oh, look at that shirt. The shirt says, yeah. Mama, where's my pa? Does yeah. it say, gone to the White House, ha, 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 on the back? I, I, was, hoping your signature, I, I was hoping your signature would add that. Oh, one. okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I really liked earlier when you were talking about James Callender, and you were just kind of, well, then his head was shaved, because clearly this kind of, you read this, it stuck in your head, you knew it was, it reminded me of one of my favorite moments from Whistle Stop, which was, I think, like, hurrah and hokum, where you're just like, went on for a couple of minutes about, well, this is the first photograph we have of the moon. Oh, yeah. And the Segurotype. Was... And it reminded me of a project I had in undergrad where the history class professor said, read a month of a newspaper with a topic in mind, and then let me know what your real topic is, because you're going to find something that is much more interesting than when you set out to, to study. So it seems like you might have a lot of those moments that stick out, but maybe you haven't been able to force them into an episode of Whistle Stop yet or make them part of cocktail chatter. So anything you'd like to share? Well, it's like we arranged this beforehand. So, <laughs> so it feels like but part of what this book is and what we're doing right now is, a, is this wonderful evolution of these are stories that I love because they're interesting to me and I, they're part of my work. And they're just a delight. And sharing that delight with you all and then hearing back from you is wonderful. It's the reason I do what I do. Recently, when uh, Michael Bloomberg suggested that Donald Trump wasn't sane, that felt to me, you know, that's, so that's new questioning. Because I've asked Secretary Clinton a couple times whether when she was criticizing Trump, she was making a specific claim about his mental capacity. And she's always said no. So I thought, well, when else have they done this, right? That's basically just the default next question. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure I knew this, or if I knew it, I've forgotten it. When Goldwater was running, a magazine, a, a magazine called Fact Magazine, which I have here, did a special... We, we did so, not arrange this. No, and the reason I have this here is because I thought, like, I would show you what the process is. So um, the whistle stop has not been written for this. It's just I, I have it with me so I can do the work on the flight home. So wow. we'll have a, a whistle stop. I, I hope this year on you know, that. I've got other ones in the queue, so... Uh, thanks for the question. I, I, feel, I feel like we see this a lot when we watch campaign coverage, and I imagine you see it so much more, the same sort of overused metaphors or platitudes or false truisms. I feel like the lanes and primaries come to mind. If you could wave a magic wand and prevent all reporters and campaign spokesmen and candidates from using either a false truism or an overused metaphor, what would you choose and why? Game change, double down, or two. <laughs> 
I mean, just because everybody uses them. Whenever they talk, it's a game changer. I think, wait, we were playing Parcheesi, now we're playing croquet. <laughs> now that would be fun, right? I don't know, I'm, I'm the user of so many of those cliches that I don't wanna, <clears throat> I don't wanna uh, catch myself. You know what I'd like to get rid of is uh, vice presidential speculation stories. Because you're gonna know when you know. And then you'll be able to, but we spend months going, you know, is it person A, is it person B, and what do they get, and da 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 Just wait till they decide. Think about all the work, you, things you could do. You could be with your kids. <laughs> you could start a garden. Instead of thinking, you know, which of the Castro brothers is it gonna be? You know, that's, that's my answer for the moment. After you have focused intensely on the American campaign history for another year or two, have you thought about uh, diversifying into international campaigns because there are so many other just ridiculous democracies. I think if you look at Italian democracy in particular, it's been dominated by spectacle in the way that this year feels in the U.S. for a lot longer than we have. Yeah. And so I, I feel like Berlusconi might have some lessons for Trump. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> Berlusconi, you could do a whole year on Berlusconi. <laughs> um, the problem, I, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a great idea. The problem is it's harder for me to BS my way through. Uh, <laughs> European history, because I'd have to really know what I'm talking about. Um, I mean, you can so I'd, Canada and England, since at least then you can read the primary sources. Right, exactly. I wouldn't, um, but I can finish off the answer with a Berlusconi story, which is when I covered President Bush, Berlusconi, we went over to Italy, and Berlusconi, who had, you know, was a media mogul, really knew how to treat the press right. We had, before a press conference, there was a vast tent at the Borghese Gardens, where there was this spread of, like... <laughs> row after row of the most fabulous Italian food. This was like we had to be there three hours because security was so tight. This was after 9-11. And we had to be there so early. And there was just so much food. And then like three bars. <laughs> and this was a man who knew, Bob Dole used to say in 1996, just keep them quiet with food about the press. And this Berlusconi knew this, that basically everybody would just eat and drink and then you know, they might mumble out some questions at the time when the press conference came around, but they might not. They might just roll over and take a nap. So anyway, but I, maybe I'll try. Maybe I'll try, but there's so much. I mean, I didn't, this alone could be two different episodes. Anyway, thanks for asking. So this is a, another magic wand question. So having spent so much time thinking about the process via which we choose our leaders, if you were given the power of mind control and could persuade Congress to pass one single election reform, what would that be that would allow us to have better presidents? Gosh, that's a good question. So a lot of people would say gerrymandering laws. I don't know if that's as useful as actually something else you could use your wand for. Because we're all, if you believe in the big sort that we all live near each other now, so then we all live each near each other. And so um, we're doing our own gerrymandering, even, even though obviously the way things are drawn makes it, exacerbates it. I don't know, you know, the, when you think about the role that money plays in politics and what it does to change people's opinions, I think you'd probably want to start there. It's that the people who fund your campaigns are the ones you call when you need a, an answer. This was explained to me when I first came to Washington by a Republican lobbyist who was really good at his job. And he said, what happens is not that I call up and say, I want X on this energy bill. What happens is the lawmaker, who I have a relationship with, because we've hung out at golf matches and all these other fundraising things, is my friend now. And he knows I know about energy. And so when he needs to get up to speed on a bill, he calls me. And I say, you know, I have this great young kid, and he's really good on, on fracking. You know, you should, you should hire him. So he hires him. So now 
he's got a guy inside the office of the senator who, or the congressman, who shares the same views that the lobbyist does about the way the legislation should go. You know, and so that access means that the people who are writing checks get the access to the lawmaker, not just the lawmaker themselves, but to the process. They get their hands on the, on the writing of the legislation. That doesn't seem to me to be quite right. Now, how you fix that constitutionally, that's, I don't know. I guess that's what the magic wand is for. But what the ultimate optimal system would be, uh, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I'd also like to find a way to get back to split ticket voting. When Nixon and Reagan were both elected, the states they won, half of the senators were for the other party. So you had Democratic senators in states that Reagan and Nixon won. Now, when Obama won, like 80-some-odd percent of the states he won also have two Democratic senators, which means the senators aren't, there's no incentive for the senators to think about what the other party is thinking because they know basically, you know, this is a Democratic state or this is a Republican state. So it makes the Senate more like the House, which means there's structural, there's no structural incentive for compromise. Uh, What is your favorite biography of a historical figure? You can give me top three if that's easier. Well, um, Manchester's Churchill is is amazing. Michael Frady's Wallace, thin, super thin little volume. He's the Atlanta bureau chief for Newsweek, and I don't know what if it. I don't know if it's a great biography. It's just a. It's a really. It just captures the news magazine writing style of that period, which was not too flowery just paints a really great picture. Um, and it's just some great writing. One of the big themes of Whistle Stop seems to be that uh, history repeats itself and the parallels between our current times and the past. Um, is there anything you see in the election season today that you think is genuinely new or unprecedented, other than brazen foreheads? Right, yes. Yes, the, the uh, lack of talk of brazen foreheads is a <clears throat> historical tragedy. Um, to my challenges, on the one hand, I want to say, look, we've been here before, there are patterns and all that. But then I also don't want to like fall into, oh, we've all been here before, nothing's new. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump, we've had, so Wendell Wilkie in 1940 was a businessman who leapt over the people running for the Republican nomination and got the nomination. He'd only been a Republican for a year, which is only a little bit longer than Donald Trump was. He's been a Republican for two years. But Donald Trump is... I mean, he's singular in, in uh, nobody's ever run with that kind of name ID. Nobody has accumulated the number of fact-checking issues that the, whether it's Polifact or the, uh, the Washington Post or the Associated Press, they have all judged him. I mean, this, is, this isn't a partisan statement. It's a statement of fact that they have judged him to be the, the greatest abuser of or the one who has been in need of the most fact-checking. So that is new. On the other hand, politicians have been bending the truth, just they haven't done it as in the aggregate as much as he has. So that's new. The fracture in the Republican Party seems new. We talked about, you know, f- a fight between the Speaker of the House and the party nominee. But you did, you have had these breaks in the parties before. So I guess what I would say is that the reality TV part has a little bit of a history in Perot. Ross Perot thought he could just go on Larry King and get um, coverage, which he sort of could, which is sort of similar to what Donald Trump can do. But um, Donald Trump was a pre, he arrived this way, sort of Perot became what he was. The, the media element of Trump and the post-fact part of his campaign are probably the two things that feel the most uh, new about this, this campaign. And by post-fact, I mean, clearly Hillary Clinton has serious issues with truthfulness on certain topics. But it's, it's still 
but his numbers are bigger. Thanks, all of you, for coming here. Thanks to my colleague, Faith. Thank you, Faith. Thanks for listening to this special live show mashup of Whistle Stop. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. We are a part of the Panoply Network. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The researcher for Whistle Stop is Brian Rosenwald. He is, of course, our Cracker Jack researcher, whose research was no more Cracker Jack than all of the additional work he put in to the book and at Great Neck Pace. Thanks to all, again, who came out to the shows in New York and San Francisco. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new edition of Whistle Stop. Thanks for listening. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation.